I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me for a scripture reading to the letter of James. I'll be reading James chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 4. This morning we begin a series of sermons on the letter. We're using a pew Bible that can be found on page 1199. James is found near the end of the Bible, right after the book of Hebrews, or letter to the Hebrews. Let us now hear God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Thus far the reading of God's word made his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask you a question. Is joy the predominant affection of your heart in afflictions and adversity? While Pastor James That's easy for you to say, especially when you consider in this letter the issues that he will address. Are you poor, James? Have you had the rich, my boss, lorded over me in such a way that he inhibited the proper amount of money due to me for my work and labors? Count it all joy, brothers. Oh, easy for you to say, James. We do the same thing in adversity. What's the predominant affection of your heart, the predominant feeling of your heart? In adversity, in trial. Is it joy? Is it joy? How can this biblical author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, teach such a seemingly paradoxical statement. How can one, going through a trial and feeling simultaneously sorrow and sadness and express yet a joy that is inexpressible? How? I dare to say only the Christian can know this. You probably know this in your life. In fact, I dare to say every one of us at some point in our lives will be asking this question, how? How? James has something to say. He gives practical wisdom and insight of biblical truth, of what it means to be a Christian in a world filled with sin and darkness. This is New Testament wisdom literature. Notice how he begins the letter. Like every letter, there's a greeting. 
He notes who's writing it, James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. The author. Who's the audience? Who are the recipients to the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Greetings. This was a, one of the typical ways of writing a letter in those days. Who is James here? James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he probably wasn't James, the brother of the Apostle John, who was killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. Christian history has taught that this is James, the Lord's brother. You remember James, the Lord's brother, who during the course of Jesus' earthly ministry did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He did not, did not believe that Jesus is the Christ. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Christ that the Lord's brothers believed in him and followed him. So the, the author of this letter is probably James, the Lord's brother, who is one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. We see this in Acts and in Galatians. But James doesn't allow his biological status with Jesus to influence his audience. He doesn't appeal to that. James appeals to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't appeal to his biological Status with Jesus, rather he appeals that he was a servant. A servant who is one that is called by God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Moses, like David, like Elijah, like the servants in the Old Testament, like the apostles and prophets in the New. This James is saying, I am a servant of God. I have a message for you. Listen. Listen. Jesus called him to faith and to be a witness of the crucified and risen Lord. And he's writing to, if you look in your Bible, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. There are two main interpretations of this. Some interpreters believe that this is the literal 12 tribes of Israel. That is, he's speaking to Jews scattered throughout. There was a dispersion dispersion of Jewish people during the first century. And he's referring to these Jews who are Christians scattered about the Roman Empire, which may be true. That may be a, the right interpretation because if we look at the letter of James, as we work through it, we see that it's highly Jewish. He speaks of a monotheism. You believe God is one. This, this imagery of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. We have an emphasis on, of God's law, which the Jewish people would be very familiar with. There's an emphasis on Elijah at the end of the letter. An emphasis on Abraham. He calls them, you adulterous generation, a very Jewish saying to an unfaithful people. So the 12 tribes that he speaks to or as he may be writing to could well be Jewish Christians who are scattered about 
me give you an Old Testament example. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. Listen to what it said there. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring them back, to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is Jesus, the servant of the Lord of Isaiah chapter 49, who calls his people, God's sheep, back to himself. There are the remnants of ethnic Israel that God saves through Christ and His blood. And they are dispersed in this time. But there are interpreters that believe that the twelve here refer to the whole church of God. Twelve, that numeric number is also symbolic of totality. The total number of God's elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who are called the true Israel of God. Yes, there are books written about this. Much ink has been used to sort this all out. Whether James writes to Jewish Christians or Jewish and multi-ethnic church, the letter is written for the church. It is written for his audience, it is written for us to not only hear, but also to heed what he has to say, what the Spirit is teaching the church of Jesus Christ. It is not highly theological. It is not explicitly theological. That is, he doesn't go on a teaching about the doctrine of God or the doctrine of human beings or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the church. He's He's teaching you how to live the Christian life in light of those doctrines. He already has a presupposed understanding of God, of Christ, of who we are as human beings saved by Christ. This is how you are to live in light of your doctrinal beliefs, your theological beliefs. And so following this greeting, following the greeting of who the author is, who his audience is, he is right out of the gate like a horse. As soon as that bell rings, he's right out of the gate. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Boom, you have it right there. He doesn't dilly-dally. He goes right to the occasion for joy. First point, the occasion for joy. Joy is the inner state of happiness created in us by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. It's waving in your heart the flag of victory. Victory. Victory in Jesus because Jesus had, has set us free from sin, death, and hell, there is victory. And my soul knows it well, because by His grace, by His Spirit, He has instilled in me that victory.
Well, James poses a great paradox that the world finds unreasonable and absurd. Joy and suffering can't coexist, they say. It can't coexist. If you're going to suffer, just suffer miserably. There's no joy in it. I recently read an article, you may have read this. I was astounded by this. In Canada, there's a call center for military personnel who, who suffer with PTSD. And this military gentleman called the, the call number, and the lady picked up. And this lady told the man, after this man spilled what he's struggling with, Sir, if you want, I can direct your attention to somebody who can help end your life. I'm not joking. Why suffer? Somebody come alongside you, give you a prescription to end your life. And this is happening in this country, in the Northwest. It's happening in Europe. In the Netherlands, it's legal. Why suffer? James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Thankfully, this military man found it absurd and was completely offended and hung up. Count it all joy when, not if, when you meet, literally, when you fall into, when you fall into trials of diverse kinds. Trials shouldn't inhibit a believer from having inner joy and peace because, because God is working in your life nonetheless. Count it all joy. The occasion for joy here for James is in adversities. Adversities of any kind are opportunities to exp express joy in the Lord because one's faith is centered and is not fixed upon the physical problem, the emotional, psychological, is centered upon Christ, the one who paid it all. He's not saying that this is the only feeling you should have, the only predominant affection you should have. He doesn't minimize or undermine sorrow and sadness. Let's not forget that. Yes, Pastor James, it's easy for you to say. You don't have all these attacks against you. You don't have these health issues, financial issues, family issues. You don't have these emotional problems. You don't have work-related problems. You don't have all these things. You're probably living comfortably in your, your, your lofty tower there, writing books and theology books and books on each book of the Bible. James isn't saying that joy is the only affection of the heart expressed. There's the feeling of sadness and sorrow, but it's joy. 
It's that occasion for joy where we look to Christ and the victory that we have in him. Jesus calls us to joy in the Beatitudes. He concludes the Beatitudes in this way. Listen carefully, friends. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Even persecution is an occasion for joy. That suffering, that pain, that sorrow, during Paul's imprisonment, which was not a pleasant place to be, he writes the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippian church, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. The world thinks it's unreasonable. No, let the reasonableness be known to all that you're suffering joyfully. See the paradox yet? You know it. I'm preaching to the choir. You know this suffering. One of the missionaries of the past that I would have liked to met is Amy Carmichael. In 1931, she was severely injured and left bedridden for the rest of her life. And during this time, she wrote many, many letters, many profound spiritual truths in the midst of adversity and suffering, trials of various kinds. She wrote this. She quoted Isaiah, 40, uh, Isaiah 24 saying, Glorify ye the Lord in the fires. Then she said, not when they have passed or you are out of them, they are only memories. No, but in them. You hear what she's saying? Glorify ye the Lord in the fires, not when they have passed or you are out of them and they are only memories. No, but in them. Count it all joy. In every trial, not before or after, count it all joy, Christians. Count it all joy. Secondly, the purpose of trials. We rejoice always in the Lord. Why do we count it all joy during trials? In the fires of affliction, what sensible and reasonable Christian would find purpose in trials and adversity? James says to his audience in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, literally patient endurance, perseverance. Patient endurance, I think is a good literal translation. His audience knows. You hear what he says? Look at your Bible, verse 3. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I don't have to tell you this. You already know it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Because how quick we are to forget. We need reminders always 
The testing of our faith is necessary to produce or bring about endurance, perseverance. That's what that word there produces mean. To bring about, to bring to fruition, to develop in us endurance. And so you know, Christian, that the testing of your faith brings about or brings to fruition an endurance. James uses a unique word here for testing. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith, the testing genuineness of your faith, he's referring to something other than whether or not a person is a believer or not. We're going to test them to see he's a believer or not. That's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about somebody going through the fiery furnace, going into the oven, and being burned of its impurities. As metal is tried and tested in a fire. Look with me, I'll read it if you want to take notes. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, in this you rejoice, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, Peter's on the same page here, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose of trials, and I have three purposes. There are others, but three I want, to, I want to focus on primarily. First, God ordains and allows trials to refine and purify us. That's what this testing of our faith is referring to. Being put in the fiery trials to refine us and purify us and to make us into people God wants us to be. A trial in your life is like a hot furnace that melts away the impurities in your life. Doubt, unbelief, moral imperfections. This professor at a very prestigious university or seminary once said, gave testimony that before he had cancer, he was very prideful and arrogant in his writings. He thought he knew it all. He belittled his students. This hard providence came into his life and God humbled him, brought him low. And he said, man, did God teach me? <laughs> man, did God sanctify me? I'm a different man, different person because of what God did through that trial. God teaches us endurance, perseverance by purging us through the fire to change and transform you and me, so that trial after trial, we are enduring even more, even more. For those of you who like to work out, when you build muscle, in order to do so, you need to build resistance against that muscle. If you go to a workout gym, you have various different workout machines, one for your quads, one for your biceps, triceps, calves, other muscles, shoulder muscles, and you have to go to each one 
and there's resistance against that particular muscle. So in order to build muscle, there needs to be resistance. And the more you do it, the more you are able to endure more weight, more trial. These various machines are like trials to the muscle, building them up. Your trials are like workout machines. Yes, they're hard. Yes, they're painful. But they're working out for your spiritual well-being. How many of you have done a work at home or did something at work you weren't used to or played a sport you weren't accustomed to? What happens two days later? You can't walk. I thought painting my bathroom wouldn't be a big deal. I didn't realize that squatting two days later I wouldn't be able to walk. I was all cramped. I didn't realize that I had these muscles in certain parts of my body. It is funny. You can laugh. It's funny. Did I take joy knowing that in the pain that God had a better, or my body would produce stronger muscle and that I would be, oh, but at the end of the day it's going to be fine because my muscles are going to be stronger. We are building spiritual muscle. God ordains and allows trials to refine and purify us to build you up in the faith so that you endure stronger and even harder trials. Just autobiographically, I, I, I thank God for the trials and fires that he put me through. I want to be a faithful pastor. I want to love the flock. I want to love Jesus more and more. And I want to share the word and preach the word and love people with the word. But God puts me through the fire. <laughs> and so how do you count it all joy in it, in the trial? God is refining you and me purifying you, you and me. Remember, he ordains and allows these things to come to pass. Secondly, trials are our teacher. They are our teacher. They teach us, they instruct us of our weakness and our need for Jesus more and more. It's that simple. It's not simplistic, but it's that simple. He puts us on our back to force us to look up to him. Trials are your teacher. Where do we lack faith? Where do we doubt? Where are we not trusting? Where do we need to learn of our weaknesses and failures and look more to Jesus? We are taught to patiently endure or persevere with the hope that Jesus, that Jesus will accomplish his perfect will in my life. Third, trials are our theologian. Trials are our theologian. As one reformer once said, suffering is our greatest theologian because we learn about the character of God. What do we learn about God in trials? What do you learn about him? When I visit you, maybe I've said... What is God teaching you? What are you learning about Him? 
Trials are a theologian because they direct our attention to a sovereign God, a sovereign Lord, who's in control of all things, even our adversities. And we learn much more profoundly and deeply that God is our Father through Christ. And that all things must work together for our salvation. In fact, not one here can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. So we learn that our God is a God of providence, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God who cares for us and will never leave us nor forsake us even in the adversity. Do you know that for yourself? The suffering of a disease or persecution teaches us God's providence is for my good and His glory and He will sustain me. I learn to lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge Him and learn from His wisdom, His guidance. If I grew up in a broken family, and there's a lot of brokenness out there, a lot of hurting boys and girls, a lot of brokenness in families, I learned that my Father in heaven will never leave me nor forsake me. And He is faithful always. And He has promised me that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is what? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Trials are your theologian. You learn who your Father in heaven is really is. He is good, and He loves you. He loves you. Not even the trials can separate you from His love. And so in that trial, you count it all joy, Christian, that your Father is there and loves you. Our first reaction or response to trials is, how can I get rid of it? Is that you? Is that your first response when a trial or adversity comes? How can I get rid of it? Unwanted trials are used by God for our good. They are our teacher, they are our theologian. And it takes perseverance or endurance of faith to know and believe that God is sovereign and holds all things together in His hands. And you come out the other end stronger. A stronger Christian. In the midst of the adversity, we often think, how can I get rid of it? You know what an embroidery is. Parents, show your children what an embroidery is. You ever see the back of an embroidery? It looks like chaos. There are pieces of string everywhere. There's no order to it. There's no loveliness to it. But when you turn it over... You see it. It's beautiful. It brings joy to the heart. Some of you are looking at the back of your embroidery, and that's how we are viewing the trial. We're always looking at the back of the embroidery. Turn it over and look what God is doing. Look what God is doing. Look what God is teaching you. Edward Payson was a preacher in America during the 1800s. During a time of great adversity, adversity and trials physically, his friends couldn't find any good reason for it. 
He said, no, but I am well, as well satisfied if I could see 10,000. God's will is the pr- very perfection of all reason. Then his friends noticed his spiritual joy in the midst of physical suffering. One of his friends said, I presume it is no longer incredible to you, if ever it was, that martyrs should rejoice and praise God in the flames and on the rack. Edward said, no, I can easily believe it. I have suffered 20 times as much as I could in being burnt at the stake, while my joy in God so abounded as to render my suffering not only tolerable, but welcome. When Jesus is our all in all, joy exceeds our trials and even welcomes them. James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces patient endurance, spiritual muscle. Lastly, the goal of patient endurance. The word there, telos, what is the goal? And verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect or perfect work. What's the full effect or end result of the perfect work of steadfastness? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect here means wholeness, not lagging behind. And in context, not lagging behind in endurance and in joy. The perfect man is the mature Christian that doesn't fold in trials, but endures, perseveres during the course of his life through adversities. His spiritual muscles have been worked out by God and his spirit. And he doesn't doubt or fold in the fiery trials. In fact, he is a mature man in Christ, an imitator of God. Are you a person of integrity? one who shows mercy, one who is patient in trials, that in your trial you have joy in the Lord, for you know that God is faithful and will see you through it, and therefore you rejoice. Complete. Complete means that every part of the Christian's life expresses itself in adversities, and trials with patient endurance. This is the perfect work or full effect of endurance, patient endurance in the life of a Christian. That through the trial, one endures, not lagging behind, an imitator of God in the trial. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross and His suffering and shame. Jesus Christ truly knew suffering and joy in such a profound and deep way more than we can ever think or imagine because he is true God and true man. And he did it for us. James is not saying that we achieve moral perfection here. We are not able to achieve moral perfection or wholeness on this side of glory. But that's not to say that we shouldn't pursue it and strive to be like Jesus, to be like our Lord and God. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 to 5 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice now in the trial, in the hope of the glory of God, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters. Count it all joy. The hymn writer, in closing, the hymn writer William Copper, many of you know who he is, suffered from great bouts of depression. In fact, if the psychological community had a hold of him today, he would have been called or diagnosed as a manic depressant, hospitalized, institutionalized. But he wrote some of the most profound hymns in the Christian church. He wrote from a heart that suffered greatly. He writes this, God moves in mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Count it all joy, Christian. Look on the right side of the embroidery of God's work in your life. And don't dwell or be consumed with the other side, the wrong side of the embroidery. God is perfecting you and me for our good and to the praise and glory of his great name. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that salvation is full and free in Jesus Christ. And salvation not only includes justification by grace through faith in Christ, but you are working out your salvation in us day by day as you are transforming us, sanctifying us by your word and spirit sanctifying us through the trials and tribulations of life so that we lean on Jesus all the more. And because Jesus is so near and precious to us, we can indeed count it all joy because there is victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming love. O oh, Father in heaven, we pray that we would see your glory even in the midst of adversity, that we would see your sovereign work in our lives. May we glorify you and suffer well, pointing not to ourselves, but to he who loved us and gave himself for us, even the Lord Jesus Christ.